Well, that's better. Good evening, everyone. That's not how I intend it to begin, but it's one of these situations you never know what to expect these days. So it's great to be with you again in the present. Thank you for the invitation for these three weeks, and I'm certainly looking forward to it. And it's good to be with those who are on Zoom as well. And uh, we trust that together, whether here or wherever, that we will really uh, experience the presence of the Lord as we study his word together. Thank you for the welcome, Adam, and for reading that passage of scripture about Jehoshaphat. Do you like a good story? Yeah, I think most people do like a good story. And when you turn to the Old Testament that we're studying tonight, it's absolutely full of great stories. You have a wide choice between stories about love, like Ruth and Boaz, and you certainly have plenty of war stories to choose from. Stories about spies and kings, treachery, stories and mystery stories, murder mysteries, you know, all sorts of stories in the Old Testament. And Jehoshaphat certainly is one of those stories. But as we turn to the Old Testament, it's not just to get a good story, although we certainly do that. There's more to it. When you're reading the Old Testament, you're not just reading a story. You're not just reading history. Now, I didn't say it wasn't historical. Uh, but you're not just getting history. You're getting more than that. Because when we turn to the Bible, it is the Word of God. And it has a powerful theological message for each one of us. So even though you're reading a story, it's a story with a message. Because the entire Old Testament is always on the move. It's always going somewhere. And when we read about a king, especially in the Old Testament, the way that that king behaves points you forward to the New Testament and to the King of Kings. The whole Bible points you to Jesus Christ, the King. So when we read about Jehoshaphat, it is certainly not superficial to look at what is said about him and learn lessons from it about the Savior. The verses that we read together tell us about how Jehoshaphat uh, was uh, calling people back to God. And it tells us right at the start that he went out again among the people. He didn't stay in Jerusalem. Uh, there's another story earlier about a king who did stay in Jerusalem uh, and uh, when other kings were out to war, and it tells you about all sorts of trouble that ensued when he had an affair with Bathsheba. Uh, but um, 
he stayed at home when he should have been out there. But Jehoshaphat wasn't like that. It says that he went among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim. That meant just everywhere, right over the place. He was a hands-on king. He got involved with people. He wasn't a hidden person in some ivory palace by any means. And immediately you can see how that this does clearly help us to point us forward to the New Testament because that's exactly what Jesus did. He did not stay in heaven, but he got involved with people. He came to where they were and met them at the point of their need. He came, he came down to this earth as the king of kings. So, like Jehoshaphat, he was a king who had personal involvement. The second thing we read about uh, the king was that he brought people back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. You see, the nation of Israel was very good at going astray. Uh, sheep are renowned for that. And in the Bible, we're told that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. When I was a young lad, my uncle had sheep and with plenty of experiences of chasing them up and down the road and trying to get them back in the field. And although I was very young, uh, I had to learn some new words because he would always pick one sheep. And I thought it was rather cruel. Maybe it was, but he used to pick one sheep and tie her legs together, just the hind ones. And I said, why are you doing that, uncle? And he said, that's the culprit. She's leading everybody else astray. Well, as soon as he found one culprit and got her sorted, there was always another one because sheep love to go astray. And so do people. And so the Israelites were continually going astray. And Jehoshaphat brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And isn't that exactly why Jesus came? To bring back the lost sheep. So you can see a reflection of the good things that this king did. It's always pointing you forward. You see, the Old Testament is a book of ever-increasing anticipation. Everything you read is not just a story, but it is opening up the story of God's salvation and revealing how his son came to seek and to save that which was lost. So he came to bring them back to God, and the, uh, he also appointed judges in the land. And this is the first wordplay that we can see in this story tonight, uh, because Jehoshaphat, uh, the, the Jehovah is the Lord, and Shaphat means he judged. So Jehoshaphat's name actually means the Lord judged, or the Lord judges. The Lord is the great judge. So that when Jehoshaphat brought people back to God, 
he set judges to settle disputes among them. <clears throat> he not only wanted them to have a right relationship with God, but he wanted to sort out relationships with each other. He wanted good relations between the people. He established support for those who had grievances. He wanted them to be a people who had a good relationship with God himself and a good relationship with each other. And, uh, you know, and of course, that points again to our Lord. That's what he came. By this, he says, shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for each other. He came to help us to love each other and to have a personal relationship with God and a relationship with other people. Now, judgment, of course, judges in my mind, uh, in our society, thinking of judges, you always think of judgment being to pronounce somebody guilty or not guilty. But, but um, that's not really the heart of biblical justice. Uh, it goes further than that. Uh, biblical justice is uh, putting things right. It's not simply pronouncing guilty or not guilty. When God judged the Egyptians, he judged that they were wrong in what they were doing, and so he delivered Israel from them. Uh, judgment is uh, a way of putting right what is wrong between people, and that's what Jesus came to do. He came to, to this world that was in such terrible need to put right the things that were wrong. So in a, in, a, in a wonderful way, the idea of kingship points us to Jesus. Uh, well, a good relationship then that Jehoshaphat had done, this uh, revival of religion, this new uh, attempt now to bring people back to God, does that mean that everything from then on would go well? Some people expect that, you know. I think when I uh, went to, to, to Bible college at first and thought uh, that how I was following God's call, um, to be honest, I think I expected everything to work rather perfectly. And it didn't. I wasn't there a week until my father had a serious accident. And then my grandmother took seriously ill. Instead of everything seeming to go right, everything seemed to go wrong. And you know, it was very hard to understand, but a good lesson. Even if you're in the center of God's will, it doesn't mean that everything will go perfectly. And so after all the work that they did to bring people back to God, terrible news reached Jehoshaphat. A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And then the worst bit of the news, they are in En Gedi. Now that might not mean very much to us here in the Crescent this evening or wherever you are, En Gedi, but the people hearing this, En Gedi, would mean certain things to them. First of all, 
En Gedi was very close to Jerusalem. About 25 miles, I think. It was um, possible to reach Jerusalem through little uh, pathways through the hills, through several ways you could get to Jerusalem in a day. Well, those trains, I, I don't think I could, because the, the Dead Sea is the lowest point on the surface of the earth, about 1,500 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem's about 2,500 feet above sea level. So quite a climb. I don't think I could do it in a day, but these soldiers certainly could. And so this was bad news. Trouble was not only coming, it was almost there. Disaster was a day away. And uh, the other thing about En Gedi was that it's one of the most peaceful and beautiful places you could ever be. I, I show some bias here, but uh, if you've ever been to En Gedi, you'll recognize pictures like this. It was a beautiful, peaceful place. And for those raiders that were coming, most important, although it's by the Dead Sea, and you can't drink the Dead Sea, not if you want to live, but En Gedi has got lots of fresh water. So that also was bad news. This army would get all they needed in supplies there. A peaceful place where um, I love to watch the rock badgers or the conies as they sun themselves in that lovely place. And in this picture of peace, disaster had come in the shape of people who represented all that is bad about humanity. These were the dregs of the earth. These showed why God cannot look on sin with allowance. The sin that Adam did resulted in human beings being so unkind and treacherous to each other. These people had nothing had been done to them to make them so uh, violent. But yet it was sin in their hearts and pure greed they were simply finding somebody that didn't have the resources to resist them, and they were simply going to kill other people and take their possessions for no better reason than they were there. And it was pure greed. And so in that lovely area of En Gedi, disaster came. With all the atrocities planned, that human minds, human sinful minds could think up. And so, what do you do in a situation like that? What do you do when things go wrong? Do you say, I don't deserve this, or why, Lord? Well, you know, when I think back on things going wrong, when you live in this world, that is going to happen. We were talking earlier and saying that living, living a life in this world has side effects. You know, we're always talking about viruses having side effects. To be alive has side effects. There are things go wrong. 
But if you know God, they still go wrong. But what's the difference? Well, if you have a relationship with him, then you've somewhere to go. It's not just panic. Oh, as those who believe in him, having a relationship with God is the greatest thing in the world when you face trouble because you're not left to simply panic. You have someone that you can bring your problem to. Some people uh, think of, uh, of doing that just uh, uh, as a kind of uh, safety measure, just uh, using God almost like an emergency cord. Um, last year, just after, remember after the, the, the things opened up again, you were allowed to go to the barbers, but you had to make an appointment. So I was down in Belfast, and I walked past the barbers, and I saw it was empty. So I thought I would go in and see if he could trim my hair, which had been growing for about eight weeks and was getting rather untidy. And he said, oh, you need an appointment. I said, well, when can I get an appointment? He said, five minutes, okay. So, uh, so we fulfilled all righteousness. I got the appointment. And then he said, I, I don't know you. Uh, what do you do? And I said, well, uh, when that's sprung at you, what, what do you say? I, uh, do you say you teach Hebrew? That always kills the conversation dead. So I said, oh, well, I, I teach the Bible to people. Ah, he said, then you're a religious person. He says, I'm religious too, um, some of the time. I said, what do you mean? He says, anytime I'm in trouble, I'm religious. I always believe in God if I'm in trouble, but just if I'm in trouble, you know, a kind of part-time thing, a, a kind of just using God in an emergency. And, and there's a lot of people today suddenly learn how to pray when they're in trouble but they don't pray when they're not in trouble. And there's nothing like that in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can be a part-time Christian. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can be half holy. It's a relationship with God that we have in good times and in bad. And then when we're in trouble, we can call on him all the time, not just when we're in trouble. And so Jehoshaphat and his people could call on God because they knew him. It's a tragedy when people wait until they're in trouble to call on God because they're calling on somebody they don't know. But if we know him, as Jehoshaphat did, then when we're in trouble, there's someone to talk to. And so... The, in, in, in this time of disaster, the king said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. So the first thing he does is shows faith in God's greatness. This was something that was so important that he knew who he was calling on because the world at that time was full of gods. Gods that were the creation of people's imagination. 
Jeremiah describes gods like that as being like scarecrows. Back to my uncle again, the one with the sheep. He also had a crops, and he was very good at making scarecrows. And when Jeremiah said that the gods of the nations were like scarecrows, I always thought of my uncle's farm, where he had two brush shafts like that, and some clothes thrown over it, and an old hat. And the crows used to come and sit in the crossbars to see where his seats were. You know, the, the things were totally useless, except to the crows. They found it a good place to perch. So scarecrows are useless, and other gods are useless. Our own resources are useless when we face impossible situations. But for Jehoshaphat, he knew a God who was great, a God who ruled over all the kingdoms of the nations. There's nobody could stand up to him. And so he had somebody that he could call to the great God. And secondly, he could not just put his faith in God's greatness, he put his faith in the fact that God had plans. God had made promises to Abraham. And God had a, a plan that we see, as I mentioned earlier, in the Bible, a plan that began in Genesis and goes right through to Revelation, a plan that even existed before the world was made. God had a plan to save people from their sins, a plan that led Jesus to Calvary. A plan that led him to allow his body to be broken and his blood shed to save us, to pay the price for the sins that we have done and to take us to be with him forever. The promises that started in Genesis went to Abraham, King David, all the way through the Bible uh, will one day be fulfilled when Jesus comes again or calls us to himself, and we will live with him through all eternity. He is a God who has a great plan. And the great thing tonight is that if we belong to him, we're part of the greatest plan ever made. And Jehoshaphat could put his faith in that and say, Lord, you made those promises. You have your plan, and we're part of it. Are these people, this rabble, this violent crowd, Lord, are they going to thwart your plans? No, they're not. Nobody can withstand you. So he had faith in God's greatness, faith in God's purposes and his promises. And remember his name? Do you remember what Jehoshaphat meant? The, the Lord is judge. So he had faith in God's justice, that God would put right what was happening. Because he says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Whenever you face a problem, it is so easy to keep thinking about it, isn't it? It would have been so easy to say, our eyes are on the enemy, or our eyes are on the disaster that's facing us. When you have a problem, it is so possible to get it, to, to let nothing else come into your head. Do you ever lie awake worrying about something, and the next morning realize that maybe it wasn't so important after all? Because the more you look at something, the more you become obsessed by it. 
So instead of letting the problem fill his mind, he says, My, our eyes are looking not at these people, not at the disaster, not at what might happen tomorrow. Lord, we're looking to you. Reminds me of that lovely little chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now I know that I am talking, telling you, giving you advice that I'm not very good at keeping myself. Isn't it true that even a little coin, if you hold it up to your face, could block out the light of the sun? And so sometimes it is so hard to let go of the problem and get your eyes on God. Let go. Do you know that verse in, is it Psalm 46, where it says, Be still and know that I am God? Well, I'll not go into the Hebrew now, but the Hebrew there is used elsewhere to mean let go. Let go and get your, let, let go of this holding on to this problem and let God, the, uh, his greatness, uh, his ability, his promises fill your vision rather than the problem. A problem only gets bigger the longer you focus on it and the longer you look at it. He didn't underestimate the problem, but he didn't underestimate the great God whom he believed could deal with it. There's a verse in Deuteronomy that I thought, uh, you know, um, I know you don't usually have memory verses for evening services. We keep that for Sunday school, but it's a good thing to have a memory verse. And this sums it all up that uh, Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, what to do when you face a problem is to hand it over to the rock. That's a great word, the idea of certainty, God's reliability. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are Jehoshaphat. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, praise God, just and upright is he. He's the one we can bring our problems to and know that whatever they are, he will be able to deal with them. So while they were praying to the Lord and fasting and to, to focus their minds, they, they not only prayed, they, they gave up their normal food and put every effort into focusing on God. And while they were doing that, the Spirit of the Lord. Now there's a powerful word, the Spirit of the Lord. We know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we read of the Spirit that He's powerful. The same word is used of the wind. It's, uh, uh, I'll give you one Hebrew word, ruach, is the word for spirit. But it also means powerful wind, that you, that's mysterious. You can see how powerful the wind is, but you can't see the wind. You can't hold it. You can't put it in your bag. The wind is powerful, always moving, always doing things. And the Spirit of God is God in action. 
And we know that the first mention of the Spirit in the Old Testament, the Spirit moved upon the waters and things started to happen. And so the Spirit moved in that gathering, that prayer meeting they were having. And when the Spirit moves, things start to happen. You see, when we come together to worship, we don't rely just on a human voice. We don't rely just on a, a, a person being able to uh, preach or read God's Word. The one we're really relying on, the one who can really make a difference to life, the one who really makes a difference to situations is the powerful Spirit of God, and He's here tonight. And if, if God moves in your heart, it'll not be James McKeown that moves you. It'll be the Spirit of the living God who can take His Word and make it relevant to every one of us, wherever we are. And so the Spirit of God moved upon Jehaziel. Jehaziel means something like the Lord sees. The Lord, remember when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush? Do you remember what he said? He said, I have seen, I have seen the oppression of the Egyptians. And tonight, as God looks at our world, he says, I have seen. And so God saw the iniquity that was happening, and he came to do something about it. And Jehaziel, guided by the Spirit of God, says, don't be afraid. Well, sometimes it's easier said than done. But then he gave them a reason for not being afraid. Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Isn't that great? Sometimes when we look back and we think that we're totally in charge or that we have to do everything in our own strength. It's good to remember that there's things that we cannot do ourselves. There's situations that we face that really we don't know what to do. And in times like that, we can turn to him and hear the Spirit of God saying to us, the battle is not yours, but God. God's in charge of this. So that led them to react in a certain way, knowing that, uh, that, that God was in charge. And it all happened when they prayed to him. It's in prayer great that when we face something we cannot do ourselves, you know, God answers prayer. Sometimes, I'm sure we underestimated. I remember a, a business meeting some years ago, and uh, one of the people was a bit late coming. And uh, the chairman said, well, we'll wait for him. I'll tell you what, we'll open in prayer and then wait until he comes. So he opened in prayer and said, amen, and the door opened and the man came in. And he said, I'm so sorry I'm late. And the chairman said, not thinking, I think. The chairman said, it's all right. 
All we've done is pray. And I thought to myself, I didn't say anything, coward, but all we've done is pray. Do you know, looking back on that meeting, that was about all we did do. You know how meetings are. But you, you know, prayer is not just anything. It's not just we just prayed. Prayer is addressing the most powerful person in the entire universe. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. Prayer is the greatest blessing that we could have. We don't need to panic when we face difficulties. Don't panic, pray. Because God has chosen to listen to his people and give us this tremendous resource of being able to come into the majesty of the King of kings and Lord of lords and bring our petitions to him. So don't be afraid. Whatever you're facing tomorrow, you know the uncertainty is the hard bit. When you're facing uncertainty, turn to the one who is the rock and turn to him by faith. So this message from the Spirit of God changed Jehoshaphat from fear to faith. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And he used wee word plays right through that, all based on the uh, root, Hebrew root, Amen, let it be firm. And I think he did this so that people could go out with a little rhyme in their minds. It was something like this. Hey, Aminu, te Aminu, hey, Aminu. I think he wanted them to go out with something that they could hold on to. And so there's word plays in there. You can't do that in English. But those, um, but he aminu is uh, believe. Te aminu, you will be established. He aminu, believe. And amen, let it be. So in a powerful way, this man who was afraid through prayer, he comes out and puts his faith in the rock, in the one who can deliver him. He's living by faith. He appointed those. You would expect at this stage that he would appoint those who would have the spears and the shields and the uh, missiles to wait for these people. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't get ready for battle because the battle's not his anymore. He's not in charge of the battle. So he gets in charge of the singing. He appoints those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. And as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. I'm sure you know that um, Hebrew word. The steadfast love is one Hebrew word, and there's no English equivalent. Uh, chesed. Have you heard it before? Chesed. Uh, it's, uh, it means love that doesn't let you go. Love that holds on to you. And, and that's why we call it steadfast love. One, one word won't do. It's not just about love. It's got two ideas. It's got love and commitment, faithfulness, something that won't let you down. That's what God does for us, his chesed, his faithfulness. He's a faithful God who won't let you down, who won't let me down, who didn't let Jehoshaphat down. He's uh, the one who will never let us down. So he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord, and they went out like David and Goliath. 
against a multitude that had come to destroy them. And uh, somewhere here they would stand and wait. Those hills that led down to the Dead Sea, uh, they, they would be waiting for people to come up through the valleys, up the hills, and as they waited, they sang to the Lord. In, uh, and uh, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who'd come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they'd made an end of the inhabitants, they all helped to destroy each other. The battle belonged to the Lord. A miracle happened. Somehow God threw them all into confusion. And in the climbing of those hills, they lost sight of who the enemy was and killed each other. And so, on the fourth day, the, the battle was won by God. And all they had to do was to get the uh, valuables that were left. Instead of these people destroying Israel, they destroyed themselves. And so, the, 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 the thing that, the, the great theme of this uh, passage is that God delivered them and made them a thankful people. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baracha. What does Baracha mean? Blessing. That's what we called our house when we moved to it some 30 years ago, but I've given up on it because you get letters with the address Bruca, Breca, breaking anything, but it didn't really work. But I wanted to say this house has been a baracha, a blessing. And, and this is what God does. Blessing is when God makes you successful. And so they assembled in the valley of baracha to praise God. And they came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. God made them a thankful people. And you know, as I come towards the end of, of this little message, that is what God wants us to be, a thankful people. Can you imagine what it will be like if you have someone that just keeps asking you for things all the time and uh, never says, thank you? It'd be very frustrating. I was... Uh, in a, a little coffee shop that long, long time ago, but I never forgot it because the, the lady behind the counter was obviously uh, had a lot of customers that came every day to her and workmen that were working around the place and uh, she was well used to them, but I was a stranger just simply sipping my coffee and watching what was happening. And one man came in and he says, could you get us a fry there? and put plenty, of, uh, uh, put plenty of potato bread on it. And she got it to him, and then she gave it to him. And away he went, and she says, Excuse me, could you come back here? Are there some words that they taught you at school that you seem to have forgotten? Like, please and thank you. And he grunted and went out, and that was it. You know, people like someone to say thank you. Don't we teach the children that? I'm sure these lovely children that we see here 
Wouldn't you say thank you if somebody gives you something? Uh, maybe. Well, you know, uh, the, the, the God is a God who gives and gives and gives again, and he calls us to be a, a thankful people before him. Do you know the story of Jesus healing the leper in the New Testament? And I, th I think there's a number of occasions where he sends the healed person to the temple to offer a sacrifice and to give thanks. You know, that, that, that was what you did when you had a serious illness or through a trauma, you went to the temple and you gave thanks and, and, and gave an offering. Well, nowadays in Judaism, there is no temple, but they still do that. They still do the same thing to show thankfulness. It's called Birkat Hagomel. And it is, if you've been through a hard time, you go to the synagogue and there has to be at least 10 people there, and then in front of them you say in Hebrew, but I'll give it to you in English, roughly translated. This is the unauthorized James Version. Uh, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who does good to those who do not deserve it, and he has been good to me. And then all the congregations say, Amen. And they, instead of offering a sacrifice, they give a donation to charity. And I put that little verse in, on my desk so that when all this pandemic was over and I arrived back in the office, I would remember to say, thank you, Lord, for bringing us through this hard time. The blessing of good dealing is the translation that, that God does great things for us. And sometimes we even forget to say thank you. Um, but uh, that's really recognizing that every day he's blessing us in more ways than we ever realize. May God make us a thankful people. When you waken up tomorrow morning, do what the Jewish believers are supposed to do first thing in the morning. The first thing, as soon as they open their eyes, they're supposed to say, thank you, Lord, for giving me back my soul for a new day. Great is your faithfulness. It can turn out a bit legalistic, as for many Jews, it's just a matter of rattling off the formula. But if God makes us a thankful people, it will make a difference to our lives. Uh, just as I close, uh, I was thinking uh, recently, I've been to the uh, opticians, you know, and got the glasses, and um, the, 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 the optician said rather unkindly, do you ever clean these? <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, because, um, but anyway, I was there. Have you, another thing I noticed that every time I go there, you know those things that get you to read, they're making them smaller every time. <laughs> Definitely. But anyway, you know, there's something about you have to take care of your vision. You have to keep your glasses clean. And I think that spiritual vision needs continual cleaning. And how do we keep our spiritual glasses clean? The lesson from this passage tonight is that God is worthy of our praise and our thanksgiving. And as we come to him as a thankful people, it will keep our spiritual glasses bright and our great vision of who he is and what he has done will be clear in our lives. And whenever we're in trouble, we'll not have to pull an emergency cord. We'll be able to talk to the one with whom we have a personal relationship, because that's why Jesus died. Not to give us a 
chance to call on him in an emergency, but to live lives that are thankful for what he did for every one of us, thankful for the fact that his Holy Spirit lives within us, and thankful as we face tomorrow that we can leave this place and say, the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you and thankful. Forgive us sometimes when we forget to say thank you. Forgive us for days that we live and treat you only as an emergency cord. But help us as we leave here tonight to know the joy of what it means to have a personal relationship with the great God, with the God whose promises never fail, and with a God who's able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we ask or think. So, Lord, we pray for each one who is listening to the service tonight, whether they are here or at home. We pray that each one would know the power of your blessing reaching them wherever they are, that they would know the touch of your hand tonight, and that through this service we would all say, the Lord is with me. The Lord spoke to me. It was good to be in the presence of the Lord. So, our Father, we commit ourselves into you for this night and for the week that lies ahead, and we thank you that you've promised never to leave us or forsake us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.